0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
0: Breath Control, Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon back again,
2: Moonshot, Woodstock, Watergate, Tricky Dicky back for his third appearance.
0: Oh. Hello again and welcome to episode 102 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick.
2: And I am Tom Fordyce.
0: Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Watergate.
2: I bet he does, Katie. It feels like we've been circling around Watergate for quite some time.
0: Circling, approaching, tiptoeing around, salivating over. I mean, of course it was that scandal that stemmed from the nixon administration's ham-fisted attempts to cover up its involvement in the june 17th 1972 break-in of the democratic national committee headquarters at the washington dc watergate office building it's actually a place it's a place i've often passed as a as a teenager living in the dc really? area yeah because wow. it was right next door to the kennedy center uh-huh. where i attended ballet performances ah. so yeah it was just an office building or you know, kind of a residential building and offices no, okay no and great shakes
2: growing up in the in the states katie was watergate just hanging over everyone from the mid-70s onwards Was yeah, the scandal well, had broken properly
0: it, it was really like it was the story that that broke the internet before the internet existed it was just like uh, i mean this is something that i want to get into as we talk about it later on but like you almost just can't imagine a whole country being as aghast and astonished nowadays the way everybody was about Watergate. Like, what? People lied to us? And that people was our president? Oh, my
2: goodness. Well, Katie, I'm glad to say we have bagged possibly the best guests of all for this. Uh, joining us live from Manhattan is Kurt Anderson, the journalist, the best-selling author, and also, Katie, the host of the podcast, which we have grown to love, Yes, Nixon at Walker. Kurt, welcome. Happy to be here. Couldn't be happier. So, Kurt, my first question: When should we say that the Watergate scandal truly begins? Does it begin with the break-in at the Watergate building? Does it begin with the cover-up of the break-in, or does it have its roots earlier in the growing paranoia in Richard Nixon's mind as the sixties become the
1: seventies and the Vietnam War escalates? I'll take option C. Um, <laughs> it, it began earlier, and I and the world really tends to compartmentalize watergate as just that thing just that break in and arrest and uncovering by uh, the washington post and other journalists and so forth that was as they say just the tip of the iceberg and here it's important to 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 emphasize that because yes, hitting the tip of the iceberg set the you know SS Nixon down, but it was this big thing that had been happening for a while, which is as you say, Nixon's anti anti war paranoia. Really, I guess you could say he inherited the war in Vietnam, decided not to end it and extended it for political reasons for years and many hundreds of thousands of deaths beyond where it needed to be, and and. All of the late 60s, and especially the anti-war movement, which in Nixon's mind became essentially an anti-Nixon movement, had had led up to his his increasingly paranoid recklessness, really about I, I, doing whatever it took in his mind to cover up a crime in my view and in the view of this podcast that we did that he had committed back in 1968 and then these new crimes that he was about to commit covering up that old crime from 1968 so yeah it has at least a year and and longer really i would say four years of of this building up and then becoming this explosive crime that brought down his presidency in 1972 to 1974.
0: And Kurt, the crime in 1968 that you referred to, that's him deliberately and cynically undermining the Paris peace talks to end the Vietnam War?
1: Right, President Johnson, his predecessor, was near the end of his term in office, who had really, was responsible for the Vietnam War and escalating it, and was tired of it, had started peace negotiations. And uh, Nixon had all kinds of ways to know how that was going, including most especially the, the incredibly duplicitous Henry Kissinger, who was just a Harvard professor at the time, who was feeding information to Nixon and his, his aides from Paris um, about how that was going. And when they saw that it was going well, Nixon worked with his, his agent, basically, to, to the South Vietnamese to slow that down and screw it up so that there would be no big peace breakthrough before the election in in that November of 1968. That was really a truth that has come out in drips and drabs over many years, and now we know the full truth of it. But certainly, that was really, among other things, a successful cover-up, and a cover-up that didn't need to be a cover-up to a degree because President Johnson and his aides had decided, no, we're not going to reveal this. But then, when Nixon was president, he covered that up, among then the other subsequent cover-ups of his intentions and attempts as president to to commit the burglaries and other malfeasances that he did.
0: And speaking of cover-ups and his adeptness uh, at covering things up, it certainly seems like he had a, a regular muscle-building Gold's Gym program of uh, lying, to the extent that uh, I learned from your Nixon at War podcast that there was somebody on the White House staff whose job was solely to keep track of the lies. <laughs> which lies have been told, who had they been told to, and how to keep them straight? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, that one of Henry Kissinger's senior guys, who went on to become a senior ambassador and State Department official, uh, and a very, very distinguished character, not his not his only job. He had, he had a real job as well, Winston Lord. But he he was one of his tasks, his important duties, was exactly as you say, to to know. Who thought what? Who knew what? Who had been told what what lies people had been told as the boss, Kissinger, was about to meet with them. And and because they were all so duplicitous and Kissinger, like Nixon, obsessed with with secrecy and and control, Kissinger was was smart smart enough, I guess to have that person working for him, and I found that hilarious.
0: And, I mean, talk about keeping track of lies and being duplicitous. Let's talk about Nixon's uh, special sauce that he added to the White House, which was wiretapping his own offices, taping his meetings. Why did Nixon tape his meetings to begin with? What was his big idea about that?
1: Well, and it wasn't just wiretapping, but it was, it was microphones just placed around that would pick up things. Uh, it was relatively, by today's standards, primitive audio, so as we were going through our hundreds of hours of it, it was sometimes you had to strain to hear, and often we had to technically enhance what we were going to use. But his purpose was for history, but for his history. He, he, was, he was really, you know, in his serious way, consumed with wanting to be an important historical figure. Right. So part of it was, oh, I just want to I want a complete record of all of my conversations as president. Then when he heard that Henry Kissinger, his partner in this, was going around town, around Washington, telling everybody that it was he, Henry Kissinger, who was opening up the U.S. to China, solving the war in Vietnam, Nixon's an idiot. Mm-hmm. He decided, well, I'm not gonna let Henry get away with that, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put in, I can't help but do the impression, can I? I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna put in uh, tape, tape recorders uh, and, and did so. In early 71, everything was being taped. No president had ever, had ever done that. It was, yes, it was paranoia, but also self-aggrandizement, paranoia about his partner, Henry Kissinger, the national security advisor at the time. Nobody knew about those tapes until well into the Watergate investigation and the Watergate hearings, which was probably the single most dramatic moment of those Watergate hearings in 1974, the revelation of their existence. Yeah, hoisted by his own petard. There are so many
2: darkly tragic elements to Nixon's life, Kurt, and to his character. And the thing that puzzles me, because we've done earlier episodes about Nixon's rise, Katie, is Kurt, he desperately wants to be president and he suffers the slings and arrows of his own political misfortunes but when he finally becomes president it doesn't seem to make him happy it seems to make him more paranoid why is this
1: well it's it's a good question it's true he he was a he was a damaged person you know he was a, he, you know he had this basically abusive father and this sweet quaker mother and all kinds of reasons he he was he was damaged and insecure and he came from the wrong side of the tracks you know crappy little town in Southern California, and was was envious of and resentful of all the the Kennedys and the Ivy League types and all that, so he had all that roiling away in there as well. I mean, all that said, I think it's important people don't really realize he was a very successful politician, not a natural politician whatsoever, but he was very successful and got into the Congress, became vice president at a very young age in 1952. But he, he was never, in a national way, beloved. And he lost the presidency narrowly in 1960, then lost the governorship of California in 1962, and he looked like he was over, but no. <laughs> and he felt, starting in the, in the 50s, really, defeated by the liberals, defeated by the elite, defeated by the media. So as he is victorious and triumphal, he doesn't feel it. And does this, these overreaches, and into criminality. And one of the greatest episodes of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory that I think. I know about in history
0: <laughs> absolutely. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, such a big character in your podcast series, Nixon at War. I'm sort of thinking of him as the the Sundance kid to Nixon's Butch Cassidy, uh, but maybe your Iago to uh, Othello is a better comparison. Kissinger's described as manipulating Nixon' shamelessly pandering and playing to him. Did Kissinger have a role in the Watergate scandal, or was he just dealing with foreign policy?
1: He didn't have much of a role in the Watergate scandal, and he he just didn't—that was not his role. His role was was what Nixon wanted to be doing, right, which is making the big play to China and the Soviet Union and these changing the world and moving those chess pieces. That's what he did. Mm -hmm. But his involvement in all of this stuff was, as we hear on these extraordinary tapes, of his just being, you know, the world's greatest sycophant in these phone (laughs) conversations with Richard Nixon— saying how, how great you are, Mr. President, what a great speech that was, Mr. President. And on and on and on, over and over and over again, hearing these tapes is just remarkable to hear that. So, so he played him, of course, but in terms of actually being involved with the so-called plumbers and the burglars, and the, he was not part of that at all, and he could easily, and did, uh, distance himself from it.
2: So let's talk then, Kurt, about the break-in on the 17th of June 1972 on the Watergate building. Why does it happen?
1: Well, it's a good reason. And it, it wasn't It wasn't as though Richard Nixon, as far as we know, was in any way planning it, right? Or, or that, oh, we have to get into the Democratic headquarters in this building and find out what they have on me or whatever, whatever his minions were interested in finding. It happened as just one operation, right? It wasn't Probably, in their view, wasn't even the most important operation of this thing called The Plumbers. And it was called The Plumbers because there was too much leaking. Both Kissinger <laughs> and Nixon were obsessed with leaks to the press, with, with people in the administration talking to the press. He was obsessed and wanted to stop it. So they created this thing called The Plumbers that consisted of various shady figures, you know, former CIA agent, former prosecutor, former cops, anti-Castro militant soldiers and so forth to do whatever's necessary, and most especially committing burglaries right away. And again, one one of the successful cover-ups when the Watergate happened was a a break-in that Richard Nixon, as president, really did order and never took place at this think tank called the Brookings Institution. But so that was happening, and then Watergate was just one, one of the next ones that they planned. And so they went to plan and put bugs in the Democratic National Headquarters. And again, the context of this is interesting too, right? Because it's, okay, it's June 1972. Richard Nixon looks to be, and subsequently absolutely overwhelmingly was, cruising to re-election. It wasn't like it was a squeaker and he was going to find something out that he could use to finally pull it off and and win the election. He was going to win, and he did, in its gigantic historic landslide. An important note, because it's evidence of the paranoid sense of all of these people, the Democrats, the media, the liberals, being our enemies, our enemies who justify criminal action against them.
0: So when we're talking about this criminal action, Kurt, talk us through the caper at the Watergate. What went down?
1: It's a funny gang of burglars, right? I mean, they're they're kind of too senior of people to, to be doing such dirty work. They weren't just like, Punks. They hired off the street to, to break into this. It was it was an office and apartment and hotel complex, and they not very secure as things weren't very secure in 1972. So it wasn't a hard. It was a pretty soft target, right? And so middle of the night they were there planting devices at the Democratic headquarters. It was discovered by a security guard, and uh, the rest is history. And 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 it wasn't immediately like oh these guys are arrested and. You know, oh, they they work for the White House. It was it, it wasn't that clear, right? You know, it was a third-rate burglary. It didn't seem like that big of a deal immediately, until, as you say, everybody was paying attention, and it it, it broke the non-existent internet of 1972.
0: It's interesting that Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post in 1972 had reported that the FBI had determined that the Watergate break-in was part of a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of the committee to re-elect Nixon. I love that. it's uh, The acronym is CREEP. And uh, nothing happened. Like the revelation was out there, but his campaign was never jeopardized, and he was reelected in in November by a huge landslide. So I'm wondering what tipped the balance. Was it just an incremental gathering of more publications and journalists and media members going, "Huh,
1: this is funny." Yeah, it was. It was that, and that's and that's why you know journalists all over the world, but certainly American journalists, took such heart in a journalistic success, an investigative reporting success. Now, as so much of investigative reporting is, is true of, helped along by figures in government, the so-called deep throat uh, source, who was Woodward and Bernstein's main guy, was an FBI official but officials in government cooperating with them. But I don't want to take anything away from Woodward and Bernstein. It wasn't just, oh, here, they didn't just dump it on their lap and they reported it. It was an extraordinary long enterprise. But that, yes, you're exactly right. That That's what made it happen and what made it break. For all of the enduring cancer on America, in a way, and and, and trust in government and all the rest that Watergate represented. It was this last golden moment where journalism in this very consequential way, you know, helped save the day.
0: And speaking about the cancer on America and certainly the uh, the sickness within the corrupt political system, the cover-ups started to happen. It was kind of a whack-a-mole situation where, I guess, by this stage, Nixon was aware that uh, the break-in had happened and uh, there were orders to kind of try to contain things, and it made already bad things much worse. Can you talk to us about one of the craziest aspects of this story in my mind? mind, which is the kidnapping of Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General John Mitchell.
1: Yeah. He had been a law partner of Richard Nixon's, John Mitchell. He had had been the campaign manager of Richard Nixon's and then was made Attorney General. Also kept being deeply involved in his reelection campaign and, and was deeply implicated and convicted of crimes involving Watergate. His wife was this pistol of a gal, as I'm sure people called her. In bits and pieces, I don't we don't know really how directly from her husband John Mitchell she found out what was going on, but she found out basically tried attempted to blow the lid off it for her own reasons and was forcibly Locked away, suppressed, prevented from telling the tale as it was happening.
0: Wasn't there a, a funny detail that she was actually on the phone trying to drop a dime on the situation where when the security guy who was hired to protect her yanked the phone out of her hand and bundled her into a car? It was
1: reality made for movies. Yes, <laughs> Why does it take so long
2: to unfold this scandal, Kurt?
1: Lots of reasons. I mean, they did. he was the president and the massively re-elected president, so he had many means at his disposal to keep a lid on it. It was, in many ways at the time, unthinkable. The extent to which Nixon and the Nixon administration went, coming on the heels of, of the war in Vietnam, which was a differently and probably more profoundly disillusioning uh, moment about the powers of the American government— People didn't want to believe it. I mean, some part of it was that people didn't want to believe that their leader, that their intelligent leader, their leader opening up things with China, their leader, who, by the way, was in many ways and domestically one of the most liberal presidents of the last 70 years, was as as vicious and as much of a gangster as his fiercest critics had portrayed him. So as the scandal is accelerating, we know that Nixon was paranoid beforehand,
2: how is nixon reacting as the scandal develops
1: well just i mean it's it's a cascade it's a it's a it was paranoia that led him to commit the crimes and then of course what happens when the crimes are beginning to be found out it ratchets up it was this this terrible synergy right and during this period he drank more and more and 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 became unhinged in lots of ways and kind of delusional about things and and so it it manifested in ways that was ever more visible to those around him from henry kissinger to to aids he was clearly off the rails in terms of how he was feeling and how cornered he was feeling because at a certain point he was cornered indeed.
0: So the cover-ups start to get layered with cover-ups of the cover-ups and Nixon forces resignations of his closest aides, Halderman and Ehrlichman, and also his counsel, White House counsel, John Dean. Then uh, the next cascade is that the fact of Nixon's taping conversations comes to light. How does that happen?
1: That happens with this junior aide named Alexander Butterfield, who the committee who had been investigating this, the, the committee began meeting in early 19, in 1973. So, you know, nine months after the break-in, they found this guy, Alexander Butterfield, who, who at that point, lots of people over the course of early 73 to 1974, uh, lots of people started talking in the White House, and he was one of them. One of his jobs had been to oversee this this taping, this recording system. When they found this, you know, obviously it was a moment of of high drama and excitement among the Watergate investigators that we don't know what's on these tapes, but my God, it's every—it's got to be everything. It's there, there, there have to be smoking guns here, and indeed, there were.
0: One of the things I came across when I was doing research for this episode is a delightful little picture that I'm showing to Tom here of uh, microphones, tiny microphones hidden inside tubes of chapstick. So it was very cunning, a little bit James Bond, and quite prosaic. It's
1: pretty extraordinary, and and again, it's it's funny, right? I mean, the, the paranoid. Guy who thinks he is being spied on, in this case, spies on himself. And that spying on himself, effectively surveilling himself, yeah. uh, provided the means to his end, which is, you know, couldn't make it up.
0: The th- yeah, you can't make it up. And uh, he's his own worst enemy. The first thing that is released aren't the tapes themselves, but transcripts of the tapes, which they are scrupulously editing at the White House for um, swear words because, you know, you have to maintain some sort of sense of propriety. But the Chicago Tribune comments he is humorless, To the point of being inhumane, he is devious, he is vacillating, he is profane, he is willing to be led, he displays dismaying gaps in knowledge, he is suspicious of his staff, his loyalty is minimal. Sounds like they had him in a nutshell, Kurt.
1: Well, exactly, they did. You know, there are also, there there are just little details on the tape that, again, listening to the tapes and hours and hours and hours of the tape, which took years to unravel and be transcribed and listened to. It's, it's really remarkable, actually, that it wasn't just, oh, finally the Supreme Court said, nope, you you got to give him up, and that was that. But you see things on there that are, are just so remarkable. And, and in terms of his paranoia, I, I, I was always surprised that there wasn't more in terms of inflaming his paranoia. He was aware that Daniel Ellsberg, the guy who, who leaked the Pentagon Papers. And
0: explain what the Pentagon Papers are. The Pentagon
1: Papers had been this secret history of the Vietnam War that the Johnson administration had commissioned its own internal, basically, what went wrong? How, how, did, we, how did we mess this up so badly? And this guy, Daniel Ellsberg, who w- worked for the government and then was a contractor of the government and worked for Henry Kissinger, released this secret report that was very, very damning in the United States. Which really is the thing that set Nixon off. When these transcripts were made public, Kurt,
2: was that the first time the American public had ever heard a president speaking in those terms, using those words?
1: Absolutely. And that's a great point. It's this nakedness of, you know, we're all imperfect, we all swear, but here it was on tape. It was an important piece of the of the disillusionment package, I think, that Watergate represented.
0: And part of the disillusionment package is the infamous 18 and a half minute gap that was on one of the tapes. Uh, one of the explanations offered was the Rosemary Woods stretch, uh, Rosemary Woods being Nixon's secretary um, and implying that perhaps she hit the wrong button when she was reaching across to answer a phone call. Can you talk to us about what you think... Was on those missing eighteen and a half minutes. They
1: could be anything. I mean, and fiction writers have attempted to humorously and sinisterly describe what's in them. You know, it is interesting though, given how damning the the hundreds of hours of tape that were released right. are. What the heck was the, were <laughs> yeah. those eighteen minutes? <laughs> who, who knows? Because we don't we don't really know the context. Because eighteen minutes is a long time, right? It could be any number of visitors, calls, Haldeman and he plotting X, Y, or Z, we don't know. What is the point of no return for Nixon, Kurt? Is it the smoking gun tapes? The point of no return in terms of the criminality that led to his what would have been his impeachment and conviction and was his resignation was when he started ok and was taped ok the cover-up and the payoffs and so forth to cover this up. In terms of him knowing he's a goner, maybe even into the summer, he thought, "No, no, I can, I can still, you know, Haldeman, Ehrlich, when all these guys, they've, they've, they've all taken the fall for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get through this." But I suppose it was when Alexander Butterfield appeared before the committee and, and described the tapes, and they got the tapes. At that point, it was absolutely the norm of At that point, it was. How long does it take for this to end?
0: So the impeachment talk began, and how did the resignation go down?
1: The, the articles of impeachment were drawn. He was in the, That would have proceeded and would have undoubtedly gotten the necessary two-thirds of, of the Senate to vote to convict, and he would have been gone. So before that ever, all any of that happened, uh, the senior Republicans went to the president and said, Mr. President, this is over. you got to leave. There's no point in... in uh, fighting this any longer and he said yep sorry bye I resigned that happened pretty quickly and it allowed everybody to take solace really in, in how Watergate ended which is look it worked the system worked when I was
0: boning up on this episode Tom I came across this photograph of Nixon's resignation day lunch and uh, it's a very well,
2: just, just describe what you see here in this. This is like sort of posh prison issue food because there is a silver tray, Katie, um, but I think this probably is actually silver. He's got a glass of milk, as if he's an eight-year-old boy, and then there is a solitary plate. And let me just have a look at what he has. It. Has he got some bit of pineapple?
0: Yes, pineapple, probably what? from a can, and cottage
2: cheese. I wonder what that was. For a moment, I thought it was a floret of cauliflower, which would have made an extraordinarily strange meal. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a very small meal. Yes, but it feels almost like
0: it's like one of the stewardess uh, diets that they <laughs> used to used to put about in in the seventies. So this is a meal that he would have eaten right before his televised resignation speech. So he's keeping it very modest. And then there's also another photo that you can find on the internet of uh, him standing on the stairs to Marine One, the chopper, and he's doing the the double peace sign arms with the the hunchy shoulders, the signature Nixon move.
1: Victory signs, victory oh, signs. Oh yeah, he was doing he was doing Churchill, man. No, that 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 thing was was essentially his version of the Donald Trump thumbs up. Yeah. it always looks so uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, it looks so especially with the fully butt- buttoned up suit. Yeah,
1: undo the suit jacket. First. Yeah. so
2: how does the resignation play in america Kurt?
1: the resignation is is a great relief to, at, at that point his 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 approval was down to the hardest core of 20 or 24 percent or something again and not to make everything about the present but it's interesting to remember that he still had 20 odd some percent of people who didn't want him to resign and supported him and that's not in Small measure, because of how he had conducted his presidencies, which is to say, setting up this us versus them, of us versus the protesters, us versus the hippies, us versus the media and the liberals and all that, he really didn't invent it, but invented it as a central piece of Republican partisan political rhetoric, right? But anyway, for the 75%, It was a relief, and maybe for even some of those that hardcore, it was a relief that, as the phrase went, the long national nightmare is over. I think that was the sense. I mean, days later, essentially, his his successor, Gerald Ford, pardoned him. It was probably one reason that Gerald Ford was not elected president two years later, but people wanted to be done with it. And so I think they didn't spend a lot of time worrying too much about the pardon as a new thing to be upset about. It was like, okay, this is enough. Let's re- let's move on.
0: And so Richard Nixon never had to serve any time, or it, it, he kind of ducked out on having any charges, but there was legal action against Nixon administration members. He left Haldeman and Ehrlichman twisting in the wind, because uh, apparently he had promised them pardons. It does seem like a, quite a lot of people served
1: time, served some hard time. Oh, li- literally doesn't. So he didn't, of course, and, and not only did he not, but he, he never... Remorse, contrition, admission of guilt. No, I mean,
0: he did that that, uh, interview with David Frost in 1977, which the famous thing he said there was, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. I mean, that's a stunning get-out-of-jail-free card. I I mean, why did he even do that interview? Did he just think that he was blameless and he just needed to pronounce his innocence?
1: Well, like, like so many evildoers who don't think of themselves as evil, which is to say nearly all evildoers he wanted to just get his side of the story out <laughs> and and thought he had a, a reasonably sympathetic you know interlocutor with david frost but had the time the hours to to talk it through with him and lie about various things including for instance my hobby horse his, his attempt to queer peace in 1968 but um no i think that's why and 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 also like he'd been nobody right he'd been he'd been erased for 3 years and gave him a chance to be in the limelight again
2: in the course of our podcast Katie, we've we've wandered through post war history i'm just wondering kurt is watergate one of the most critical moments in the way that america changes in the way that america feels about itself in this whole post war period
1: yes especially if we define Watergate as I do in in the in my podcast in this broader sense of, of the paranoia and turning one's domestic adversaries into enemies and this kind of ferocious cultural class-based schism between the educated and the uneducated and all the rest that we're still dealing with more than ever today. So to the degree it encompasses that, which is to say the whole Nixon presidency capped off by Watergate and the challenge to the very legitimacy of our democratic norms and rules and laws, then, yeah, it was this, this milestone moment. And, and so many of the, of the roots of our deepest problems as a nation and society now are visible in, the, in all the various ways in those, in those several years, capped off by what we know as Watergate.
0: Kurt, if Watergate happened today, I mean, after all the excesses of Donald Trump and his flavorful reimaginings of mores, would we even bat an eye? Would it have that impact it had back then?
1: Well, and the short answer is no, because the slightly longer answer is that Arguably, you know, the aggregate of of crimes and and rule breakings and norm smashings that the Trump administration did are equal to or greater than, in objective terms, what Richard Nixon did. And, you know, we batted an eye, but, you know, he still has lots of people who think he's great. What would be equivalent to Watergate now is the question. It's hard to imagine, but your point is correct, is that we have been inured to what is a new level of unacceptable behavior by presidents and and what isn't,
2: yeah. Katie, I think we were both looking forward very much to uh, this episode, and it hasn't disappointed. No. Kurt Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful. (laughs) Well, Katie, the sound you can hear here... Is us brushing our hands of Richard Nixon once and for all.
0: I need some hand sanitizer to really get all of that dick off my f- digits.
2: Yeah, it feels fitting, Katie, that we have sent Tricky Dicky packing yes. in some style. Thanks to Kurt.
0: No, I like his word power. And also just to, uh, to add texture and weight, he had some excellent bohemian hair going on.
2: His hair was magnificent. I don't think there's any other word for
0: it. Uh, okay, let's get back to business. If you would like another podcast to listen to that does not feature Kurt Anderson, uh, make sure that you listen to our other Nixon episodes: Richard Nixon back again, and just plain old Richard Nixon. Or you can check out Kurt's podcast; lots of Kurt on there and his hair. Nixon at War, or if you're entirely Nixoned out, Kennedy or JFK Blown Away.
1: If you
2: would like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. Do not forget, dear listeners, check out our magnificent merch collection at spreadthatfire.com.
0: Shoppers, if you want to be listeners, our next episode is
2: Punk Rock. Is that in too many chords? I think it's just too much of a
0: guitar flair you're showing right there. I think you have to be a little more brutal. Crowd Network.
2: A place where you belong.